If you have your Bibles, would you open it up to Romans 7? Romans chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, they're in the rack around you. In the same vein of what we were just singing, I'm going to ask you in just a minute to uh, pray for yourself that God would reveal to you this morning the ways in which you desperately need Him, and that it wouldn't just be song, that it would continue on and reverberate throughout this morning, because we really need God to press on our hearts about what He wants to say through this passage. And I find that we have to put our place self in this place of surrender. Say, God, how do you want to speak to me? Here's why. There's a lie that has been fed to humanity. And it's fed to both believers and non-believers. And here's the lie. The lie is that you rule. The lie is that you get to make all the decisions and you get to set the standard. And it's a lie that's force-fed to us because we like it, we take it in, and we willingly swallow the lie. And Romans 7 stands in opposition to that. The lie is, I get to decide. And it echoes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Satan said, you can be as God, and you get to decide. So we have to ask God to really push on our heart in a place where we maybe didn't anticipate him pushing this morning. God, is this true of me? Am I a rebel at heart? Do I rebel against your standards? Chapter 7 is a lesson in human nature. And I'm going to ask you to go there with me. But first, take this minute and just say, Father, I, I need you to reveal to me. So I'm opening myself up. Would you do that with me? Let's pray. God, I know that you hear us. You always hear us. Even when we're casual about it. And so whether a person's in the auditorium right now or watching online, you're very close to us. And we want to place ourselves in a position where we can hear from you this morning and that you can say what you need to say. And you'll speak through your word, I'm confident of that. You said your word is alive, and it is unlike anything else on this planet, because it does things. There's no other book like this that you call alive and sharp and active and able to discern our thoughts. So God, I ask that you would do that through the power of your word, that you would discern even the very intents of our heart and push where you need to push. And we just put ourselves in that place. Speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is kind of heady stuff, right? Remember you got out like 15 weeks or 15 minutes early last week, right? You're going to pay the price for it this morning, right? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm going to be nice. Okay, if you weren't here last week, we got done pretty early, but it was because we really needed to set up verse 7. Here's a verse that I used last week as kind of a supporting verse. And today we're going to use it as an anchor verse, Galatians 3.13. And look very closely at what it says. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of a law, having become a curse for us. 
We talked last week about how we've been released from the law so that we can produce fruit. So God released us from bondage. And we're told that Christ redeemed us from this curse. How does God's law act as a curse? I had that question come to me from a lot of people last week. How is this possible? And why should I know this? Well, for one, that Jesus became a curse for us makes me want to understand it. Because according to this statement here, without Jesus, I'd still be under some kind of a curse. And who would want that? But also, theologically, if you're not familiar with that term, theology is the study of God. Theologically, if God's own word says that there's this thing in my law that reveals a curse over mankind, I better understand it because it sounds monumental. Like it might be something that affects all of this planet from the oldest among us to the youngest. Well, last week I told you that we would circle back around to verse 5 in order to move into verse 7. So let me break it down with you just a little bit. We'll, we'll go to verse 5 first, and you'll see it on the screen. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And Paul's looking backwards, right? He's saying, this is who I was. He's looking back on his past. While we were in the flesh... The stage of life before you knew Jesus, when you were not believing, there were things at work in you which identify non-believers, the, the sinful passions, and they produce fruit for death. But go to verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The letter meaning the commandments. Yeah, like the Ten Commandments, the big, the big law. But now, there's this huge transition, right? That's who you were. This is who you are now. We, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, we believers have died to something. We have been formerly bound to something, and we've been released from it. Formerly in bondage, according to God's word, under the old master, but now set free to serve our new master and to produce fruit. So last week, we learned that the law and sin were part of the old master, those things that we're bound to, formerly in bondage. But now we find God's command, even though we were formerly bound to it, it still has a huge role in our life. It still serves a huge purpose. And to me, my own observation, Mark Kring's own observation, it's really unfortunate that many consider life in Jesus, and I'm talking about believers and non-believers, Many people consider life in Jesus just a set of rules. Do this and don't do that. Regulations. Maybe if I'm good enough, I can earn my way. Maybe I can make God like me. God says, and just hear this very clearly. God says to you this morning, if you believe in my son, you are already under my grace. Amen? You're already destined for eternity. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I've already saved you. So you're set free to bear fruit for me. So just go back to verse 6 for a second before we go to 7. We have been released from the law. Condense it right down. We've been released from the law. Why? So that we serve in the newness of the Spirit. So we ended last week by saying God releases us to serve. He sets us free from bondage so that we will produce fruit. So we ended by this thought. Release to serve. Romans 7, 6. 
Very, very clear statement. So I asked you this question before you left last week. What am I doing to advance the kingdom? Self-evaluative. It's not, not judgmental. Just asking you to check within yourself. What am I doing to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ? What am I doing to produce fruit in my life? Go with me now because Romans anticipates a question in response to what we talked about last week. Paul, who wrote this book, anticipates that his readers are going to ask a question. And no doubt, a lot of people came to me last week with this very same question. Because Paul, Paul understood. He's writing to people who were thinking, what does this mean about the law then? What does this mean about the Ten Commandments? Are they of no effect? Well, go with me to verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, this is the way I heard it last week. Is, is this saying it's something I don't need? Do I not need this? Can Christians disregard the standards of the law? What's its purpose then in my life? Is the law actually flawed? Is that a problem? Well, Paul responds this way, no way. Right? Now, that's the gospel according to Mark, okay? That's not the way he said it. But you're going to see his response in just a minute. It was very, very strong because he chose the strongest Greek negative available to make a response to that. He said the word may, like the month of May, M-A-Y, only in the Greek language it means no way, never. Maybe if somebody puts you a, a plate of food in front of you that you don't want to eat, you can respond in Greek by saying may, no way, I don't want to eat that, right? May, it's a really, really strong word that Paul uses here. Well, what is the role then of the law? Here it is. It's in your notes. The law was given to reveal God's righteous standard, right? Number one, the law was given to reveal God's righteous standard. And number two, it was given to show you how far short you fall of God's righteous standard. That's why he gave the law. And there's a third reason for it. And both of those first two play into it. So if the law reveals God's standard... And it shows that I fall short of being able to hit God's righteous standard. Here's what it does. It's the effect of the law. The law reveals my need for forgiveness. Amen? It does. It reveals my need for a Savior. That I fall short of the glory of God. And I then have to trust in His mercy. So maybe you write this down in your Bible this morning. Or maybe you write it down in your notes the law reveals. That's what it does. Somebody asks you in the, in the world that you hang around with, they don't know the Bible like you do, and they say, what's the deal with the Old Testament? It's like so outdated. Why should I even read it? You say to them, the law reveals. So it wasn't given to show people how good they can be. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's what the scribes thought, like, look at us. Look at how good we can be. The law was not given to show people how good they can be, but to show how good they cannot be, capital N, capital O, capital T. So in this revealing, the law actually does something quite remarkable. Let's circle back around to verse 5 for just a moment. Break it down a little bit further. Verse 5, you see it on the screen. These sinful passions... They were aroused by the law, and they bring forth fruit for death. What is this talking about? Let me take you back to the Garden of Eden for just a minute. I told you I wanted to lean into that a few times this morning. Hear this thought. Because we are made in the image of God, 
we carry genetic imprints physically and spiritually, and therefore we have the imprint of God upon us, and our ancestors made a decision on our behalf. Adam and Eve in the garden chose to do something specific. They chose to rebel, and so therefore humanity was imprinted with a predisposition towards wicked behavior. And at our very core, we are controlled by a lower nature. There is something in us that wants to rebel. We are rebels at heart. Example, and I have permission to give you this story, so don't think I'm outing somebody. So Gary and I were talking earlier this week about this. And Gary had been at the gym working out, and he went to one of his favorite weight machines and was lifting weights. And then after he finished, as I understand it, um, he turned around and saw a sign above the weight machine which said, do not use out of order, right? He just used it. So he reads the sign and then, and then moves away and then thought, well, that machine worked perfectly. There's nothing wrong with it. So walked back over and started using it again, right? Even though the sign said, do not use out of order, right? You start to identify with this because we're rebels at heart, Right? So how many of you would walk away a third time and then look at it and say, huh, there's nothing wrong with that machine. I'm using it again. Okay? Speed limit signs go from 70 to 75, right? We're not going to do a survey. You don't have to raise your hands. But how many of us started driving 78, 79 when the speed limit went to 75, right? Because there's a fudge factor. There's nothing wrong. Who made the rules and who gets to tell me what to do? Right? We all understand we are rebels at heart, rebels at our very, very core. And apart from this fundamental insight into humanity, it is absolutely impossible to understand the evil that is plaguing this planet. You ever wonder why things are the way they are on this planet? Rebels, right? We should say that as just a group exercise. Let's, let's do this like we're a support group, okay? Okay. Hello, my name is Mark. I'm a rebel, right? Okay. So on three, let's say I am a rebel. One, two, three. I am a rebel, right? It's easy for you to say it because you know it. We are. There's, there's something in us. And because this is true of us, Paul's saying prior to following Jesus, our base nature is aroused by the law. Because we hear what God's standard is, and we push back and say, I don't want to go there. And it's working on us on a constant basis. So in this way, we understand that God's law not only reveals sin, it reveals, it puts it on display, but it arouses it to action. Because by nature, we are rebels, and rebels oppose restrictions. So I know this is true of me. I'll out myself. When people are placed under law, instinctively we find ourselves at odds with the lawgiver. Who made you the lawmaker? Why do you get to tell me what to do? Here's the evidence of that. In our country, in the United States, Florida is one of the great retirement communities. People love to go to Florida and their later years and hang out there and just chill. So that means there's a lot of retirement communities there. Yet I know that there's a police force in Florida, right? Why? Because little old ladies still have lead foots, right? So cops need radar guns there. 
Because we're rebels, and it doesn't matter what age you are, you still behave that way. And when we're placed under law, we push back against it. And the response of our sinful passion is to push the envelope and see how far we can take it. So on an eternal scale, not just psychological behavior, not just human nature, but on an eternal scale, the opposition against the lawgiver, the eternal lawgiver God, it inevitably ends in a price. A penalty has to be paid for breaking the law. God says the wages of those sins is death, eternal death. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, is salvation in Jesus. So Paul's got this follow-up response in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. May. No. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Is the law sin? Not. Through the law, I understand what sin really is because God says this is the standard and you fall short of it. So the law brings home the reality of what sin is. So Paul says, for instance, if the law had not said do not covet, I'd not know what coveting is. Now, why is he using coveting? Well, I'll come back to that in just a minute. But understand the word that he just used? I would not have known it. Knowing something means relational, Right? That's something that you're intimate with. If you know something, you're in relationship with it. And so Paul is saying, this is true of me. I know this. I know this is an issue. This is an area I understand. So what you're catching here is law defines sin because apart from the law, sin still exists. It just needs definition. So with this restriction in place, there's something to push back against, and we'd love to do that. So catch this, Paul is saying, this sin in me, it's aroused by this opportunity. It takes opportunity, how? Through God's commandment, and all manner of evil springs to life. See, it's only once a rule is put in place do people want to push back and do what it forbids. If you're walking down a sidewalk and you see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass, what do you want to do? Right? Okay. Take it by your laughter, you understand where I'm going with that. We want to, because somebody told us not to. It's not like I go up to my friend Joe, who owns a 1965 Thunderbird convertible, mint condition, and say to him, you shall not give me that convertible, right? It's not like we're playing reverse psychology here. We're talking about something that's true to our core nature, it's representative of who we are. So when God gives a law, we want to push back because it's like, who gave you the right to make the rule? And here is where Romans differs from psychology, and it goes subterranean. There's actually an observation by God here. Because from a human perspective, God's law is actually seen by us as a denial of our rights. So check the story with Satan and Adam and Eve in the garden again. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll become like God. You get to make the rules. You get to set the standards. And if he really loved you, 
If he really cared for you, he'd never deny you anything. You deserve to be God. You get to make the rules. You set the standards over your life. And the perceived denial causes resentment within us. When we believe that we've been denied something, it gives rise to rebellion, and it produces, it gives birth to sin. See what the law is? The Old Testament commandments from God and the commandments that Jesus gave us in the New Testament, the law is really a mirror. It holds up a mirror, and it reveals just how dirty we are inside. That's what James wrote about in chapter 1, verse 22. You read it later. He says, there's like an individual who looks in the mirror, and they forget about what they look like, and they walk away. But there's another individual who looks intently into the law of God, and it changes them because the mirror reveals. Are you noticing that Paul chose deliberately not to use adultery and stealing and murder? That, that he didn't put any of these on display? He didn't say anything about hating here. He uses the word coveting. Now, there's a churchy word, right? You're not going to hear the word coveting too much out in the general public. Try using the word at work this week, right? Say, say to somebody, I coveted it this week. They're going to go, oh, you've been to church, right? Because that's a word you hear in church, but you don't hear it anyplace else. Well, you've got this word that Paul's using, and why is he using the last of the Ten Commandments as his illustration? And it differs completely from the other nine. Here's how. When you read the other nine, ten commandments, other nine commandments of the ten, you're going to see that those are outward actions. But coveting is inward. And if you want to trade the word coveting for something, you can trade it for the word desire. It's a more modern term to fit the definition. Covetousness is desiring something. And this covetousness, Paul says, it's surfaced in me, and I know what it is. I intimately relate to it. I understand it, and it leads to the breaking of the other nine. And hear this, church. It is insidious, and it is devious. And most people never recognize that they have it within them. But God's word reveals it. Let me give you an example from Jesus interacting with someone who was in their 20s. Mark chapter 10 says that there's a guy who came to visit with Jesus. And this guy, is, he's got a good life. He's wealthy. He walks up to Jesus, and he's a ruler. And he says to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response to him in Mark chapter 10 is, well, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus didn't point him to the commandments in order to earn salvation. He pointed him to the law in order to reveal what's really going on in his heart. So the guy's response is this, I've done that. I've honored my mom and dad. I, I keep all the rules. I'd separate my trash. I pull out the plastics when I recycle. I, I drive a Prius. I'm a good guy. I love the planet. I honor everything. I got this. And Jesus steps it up a notch. Okay. That's great that you've done that. Now, go and sell everything that you have. Come and follow me. Did Jesus ask him to sell everything that he had so that he could buy his way to salvation? No. 
Come and follow me is a really important part of that story. So Jesus said, you've got something within you that you covet. You desire it so greatly, God knows us. And there's something that holds him so strong that he's willing to take that thing in exchange for God. So when God, Jesus, says to him, give that up and follow me, the story says he walked away greatly sorrowful for he had much wealth. It's not the money issue. It's the fact that he wanted that over God. And God sets the standard and he says, this is what righteousness looks like. And the rebel in us says, uh, that's the cost. Thanks, I'll keep what I have. I didn't know that's what it was gonna take. See, the law is a mirror. God's word is a mirror and it reveals the inner man. And Jesus just revealed the guy's heart and put him on display. And instead of admitting his need and confessing, he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to go there. We generally tend to think of sin as outward actions, the things that we do. What God reveals to us, it's the heart. Consequently, people think they're safe. I've never killed anybody. I've never stolen I honor my parents, blank. You just fill it in, whatever it is. That was the case with Paul himself. Remember last week we talked about this? Paul said, me? I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained under Gamaliel, as to the law, found blameless. That's the way individuals measured themselves against God's law. But the law reveals sin and it shows its true colors, what's really going on down deep. A lot of you know that I, I like Charles Simeon. I haven't quoted him in a long time. Old dead theologian. By the way, the quotes from now on are in your notes. You find them this morning. One of the quotes is there from Charles. Let me put it on the screen for you. When applied to our motives, he's talking about the law, it shows us our very best actions are extremely defective. Thus, it plucks up by the roots all conceit of our own goodness and causes us to lie low before God as miserable sinners. See, it's really significant that Paul chose to use the most internal of the commandments as his example because the real battle that you and I have, the real struggle is internal. It's the heart and only, hear this, only the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can completely change you and take a sinful heart and make it acceptable to God. Amen? Only God can do that, not chasing after righteousness on your own. So the law's part in that transformation is to make a person aware of sin and the need for forgiveness. So there's another Charles I really like. His name is Charles Hodge. He lived around the same time as Charles Simeon. These guys had no distractions in their life, right? There, there's no podcast for them to listen to. There's no television shows. They've just got God's word and they're studying. And look at the depth of what he writes. Charles Hodge said this. The law, although it cannot, can, cannot secure justification, performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. It enlightens conscience, which we should not otherwise have recognized as sin. It arouses sin, increasing its power and making it both in itself and in our consciousness exceedingly sinful. 
It therefore produces that state of mind which is a necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. What a paradox. The very thing a commandment forbids us from, because we are rebels at heart, it's instrumental in producing. The very thing God says don't do because we're rebels, we go do. And God's law brings it to life. It arouses it within us. So last verse for today. I know your notes say we're going to verse 13, but no way we're making it there. We'll go to verse 8, okay? So last verse, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So bear down with me on this word opportunity. You might even want to circle it in your Bible if you have your Bible open. This word opportunity is the Greek word that's in your notes, aphrame. And, and, and it literally means a starting point, but here's the purpose of the word. It was borrowed from the Roman military. So the Roman military, when they would go on an expedition to try and conquer new territory, like our modern military structures, they would set up a base of operations. The base of operations was known as the aphrame, the starting point. So a squadron of soldiers would go to where their commanding officers were at, the aphrame, and would receive their orders of what they were supposed to do. And they would use that as a launching point, an origin to start their operation. So it's a military term that Paul brought in here to help us understand this is what's talking about, that a launch of an attack is about to happen. So track this. Sin uses the commandment of God, uses God's law as a beachhead from which to launch. And the command, Paul's talking about covetousness in his case, the command against covetousness becomes a front line in his life for these invading forces. So go back with me to the Garden of Eden again. Satan had quite a task on his hands. When you have perfectly created beings, how do you corrupt them? Something freshly created from the hand of God in which God not only says, it's good, he says, it's very good. Perfect, no sin, knew nothing of the evil that Satan is about to bring them. How do you corrupt something and make it twisted that's never been twisted before? He had to find a way to take something that God put in place for our protection and make it appear as though it was a denial. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will become as God. He has denied you. You get to make the rules. You should have authority. If he really loved you, he wouldn't hold back from you. So the very thing God wanted us to avoid to protect us, Satan twists. And that is the issue today in our life with food, with money, with power, with sex, with relationships, and the list goes on and on and on. God says, you can go there, but don't you go there. You can go that far, but don't go further. And Satan says, there's nothing wrong with further. There is nothing wrong with going back to the weight machine three times. Who are they to tell you what to do? See, this is so important to understand because I guarantee you, you've got people in your life that are looking at the Bible and saying, what is the purpose of this thing? 
It's so old and antiquated. How could it have any purpose whatsoever? It is so important to understand that no one understands the need for the gospel until they find out how miserably they fall short of God's righteous standard. One more quote from Charles Hodge. Before the gospel can be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin, we must feel we are involved in corruption and misery. Since we've got this sin nature, and you just all said, I'm a, I'm a rebel, right? We've got it. It's there. It's, it's deep within us. Since we've got this sin nature, the law of God is bound to arouse it, to wake it up. And the same way that a steel piece of metal draws a magnet, that sin nature is stimulated when God says, don't do that because of our rebel nature. Tell a child not to go to the water. What do they want to do? Go to the water. You'll find them playing in the water. Pretty soon they'll be taking a bath in the water because mom said, don't go there. Otherwise, it never came to mind. Why? Well, Romans 8, 7 helps us understand that. Romans 8, 7 says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. How does this relate to your walk with Jesus today? I pondered this a lot this week because every time I come across these issues of the law in God's word, I have to ask myself, how does this apply to me? Not just to you, but to me, to Mark Kring. Here's what it does for me, and I think you're going to resonate with this. As this relates to my walk with Jesus, here's what it reminds me of. God knows me. He knows me intimately. And he knows I have this propensity to claim my own territory. He knows I want my own way to gain my own standing. My family has heard me say this over the years. I have a propensity to claim my own kingdom, right? You insert your name in there. I'll bet it's true of you. We want our territory and we want to establish it. Why? So I can show what I accomplished. But in this eternal issue, I can claim nothing I cannot because Jesus did it all, amen? He did it all. I can't claim standing. My only standing is because of what Jesus did for me because salvation is all of God. When a person is drowning in sin, and that's what the law does is it reveals it. It just reveals that you're drowning. When a person is drowning, you have no option but to recognize you need a lifeguard. So the person who's drowning it's not like they're super intelligent when they scream out and say, help, right? They can't get out of the water and say, man, I was so smart that I called that lifeguard. No, it's desperation. The law just shines light on it and says, you are in a desperate place. You've got to call out for a savior. Here's what the law also does. This is the second thing. The law also reminds me that this rescue plan, this issue, it was accomplished long before Mark Kring ever walked this planet. Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. I had no part in it. God dealt with all of this outside of me, so therefore I cannot boast in it. So when I look at this issue, it leads me to one ultimate conclusion. This death for my sin that Jesus provided... This death for me removes from me any possibility of claiming my own kingdom, of boasting. 
That's why the writer of the hymn said, when I survey the wondrous cross, when I think about that, I pour contempt on all my pride because I got a lot of it. Don't look pompous because you do too, right? We do. We're rebels. And it's at our core. And our friends are that way too. So praise God for Jesus doing this apart from us. That's why scripture says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. It's not because of something you did. It's, it's not because of your works. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. So stay with me. I'm, I'm about done here. If the original lie that was hoisted upon mankind is you get to rule, you get to decide, then how does that play out today? Because that is the dream of every rebel. I get to make the rules. No one can tell me what to do. Well, here's how it plays out today. The great lie that's consistent to all false belief is that I can make myself acceptable to God. If I just do this, 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 and this, that's why when you ask the average person, how are you going to get to heaven? They can't answer the question other than saying, well, I've been a pretty good person. If I do this and this, I think he'll let me in one day. It's not true. God says there's only one way. Because most people think if I perform enough rituals, if I give away enough money, the fail in that thought is the sheer ridiculousness of its impossibility. How many good things do you have to do to stand before a holy God? Well, according to the Bible, only one. Acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. Because all those other things, they amount to a hill of beans. Paul said his own righteousness is like rubbish. The gospel of Jesus Christ completely cuts the legs out from all works righteousness. I know it's been many months, but lean with me back into Romans 3. Look on the screen. Romans 3, 28. A man is justified by what, church? Faith. You got that? You got that this morning? Apart from anything else, it's faith in Jesus Christ, apart from works of any kind, even good works that you find delivered and defined in God's own law, even apart from good works. So here's the ultimate purpose of the law. You've waited 25 minutes to get to this point. Here's the ultimate purpose of the law, to drive you on your knees to Jesus Christ. Apart from the law, I have no way to know whether or not I fall short of the glory of God. I have no way to judge my sinfulness. So check this. For God so loved the world that he gave us the law. How good is our God to show us, here's the standard. You don't hit the standard so therefore, I'm going to send my son to rescue you because you can never get to it on your own. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. How good is that? God loves us so much, he gave us the law. And he doesn't want us to perish. So I got good news for you. If you're new to church and this stuff is new to you, 
Jesus came to deal with this very issue in your life, to take your sin and give you a brand new beginning, a whole new start. You can leave today knowing you've got forgiveness of your sin. And if you're thinking you're disqualified, like, Mark, you have no idea of the things in my life in the past, the things that I have done. According to God's word, I don't know what's going on in your life, but according to God's word, here's what I do know. God said he is not willing that any would perish but that everyone would come to repentance. Amen, church? That's your God. I am not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So if you're new to church or you're new to this information, this means for you this morning, there is nothing standing between you and a relationship with God except your sin. And Jesus came to take that away. So you have to exercise faith. Do I believe that Jesus can do that? That he is the son of God and he came for this purpose. So I end with two verses. Galatians 3.13. 360 degrees all the way back to where we started. Why did Jesus come? Christ came to redeem us from the curse of sin. The curse of the law. And what did he do in response to that? He became a curse for us. So I get that part, what do I do then? Here's the last one, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good, isn't it? That's good. I don't care how many times you hear that. That never grows old. I don't care if you've been a believer 60 years. That's what he did for you. Don't you want to celebrate that? That's good news that he came to rescue us. I, church, Mark Kring, and I think you could say the same thing. I am so grateful that my salvation is dependent on God's provision and not on my performance because I fall short of the glory of God. This is worth celebrating, and Michael's going to do that with us because God is a jailbreaker for us. So I'm going to ask you, if you would stand and pray with me, we'll let the worship team lead us in one last song. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we recognize that we have a reason to celebrate, but we also have a reason to not let this quickly escape from our mind because you push on us. And you may have pushed some buttons this morning that I know nothing about. Father, I pray that you would not let off, that you would keep working on us. What are the things that we're holding What are the things that we're coveting? Those of us who are redeemed, we celebrate the fact that we are redeemed and that we have a jailbreaker. But God, we're also aware we know many people who are struggling, who do not know you yet. Help us to be bold, to produce fruit, to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Work through us today, work through us tomorrow, work through us the rest of this month. We put it in your hands. Use your word for your purposes. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.